0: The guest of this week prefers to speak in English, so that's what we will do throughout this episode, and is the chief technology officer of RTL Nederland. Content is king, so there's no discussion about that. Now, maybe platform is queen. First, he studied telecommunications engineering and
1: also gained more than 19 years of experience within the telecom and cable industry. Anything you could think of that was working, I would have the curiosity to just undo, understand how it worked. For example, at Siemens, Liberty Global or UPC Ziggo. Now, often things did
0: go wrong, I got electrocuted a few times in my life. In 2015, he founded his own company, Pepper Technology to then become the CTO of RTL Nederland in
1: 2017. Media today is the most disrupted industry in the world. Where he is a member of the Dutch Management Board. Technology is universal by design. Gives leading to RTL's technology group. If you want to innovate, the worst thing you can do is use data.
0: And has been driving both the agile transformation and the strategic, innovative and customer-focused plans of RTL. And that's also of the four
1: television channels and Videoland. And that's how we go on and on and on. And that's based on real, regular, short-cycled customer feedback. Here is Giovanni piccirilli
0: Hello, Giovanni. Hi, Eust. How are you? Yes, I'm fine. How are you? Very well, thanks. Happy to be here. Happy to be speaking to you. So your job title is called CTO. And some people call it Chief Talking Officer, Translation Officer, even Transformation Officer. But your title is Technology Officer.
1: That's the uh, official title, but I guess within technology leadership, you can embrace talking, you can embrace transformation, you can embrace many things. Because at the end of the day, leading technology for technology's sake doesn't bring value per se. You must include also elements of transformation, and transformation is really about getting technology in the business deeper in engagement uh, together. When we're talking about technology in the
0: coming half an hour, 40 minutes, What will be the definition we're going to use of technology? What is it? What's the definition you use?
1: Yeah, uh, some people define technology as magic. And that's a very interesting way of seeing it. So if you want to think of how to solve a problem, think of what magic can do to you. And then you can start thinking of of solutions. And I love that, that starting point of that thinking process. Now, actually, if you think about it, technology has been existing with human beings since the inception of humans uh, on planet Earth. Like with sticks and stones? With sticks and stones. um, Humans have existed and in the past they used their own strength of their own capabilities to solve problems that they had to do. uh, Lighting fire, searching for food or whatsoever. But over time, they evolved to try to solve bigger problems, bring water closer to, the, to, to where they lived, uh, or move heavy weights, uh, big stones or whatsoever, and they started using the laws of physics and chemistry to solve these problems, or starting to using animals uh, to solve also uh, some of those issues. so they had to fish from uh, what the nature could give them to address what they needed uh, what they needed to do because the, the further the society grew, the bigger they problem, the problems became the bigger the the solutions they needed to uh, to find, and if once if you see the society moving also in the um, uh, industrial era, you notice that uh, machines start becoming uh, created. Electricity arrived, automation started to show, and the repetitive tasks become uh, more um, auditable, more repeatable, higher quality. Uh, you could predict also what quality you're going to make, and then moving into the software domain software start becoming uh, an important part of the industry, whereby you could program uh, what a machine could do. Uh, you could expect also what to do with it at scale. And then lately, you also see that AI starts uh, becoming more mainstream. And then AI, at least the aim of AI, is start to mimic even human uh, uh, beings uh, going forward. So that's uh, the evolution in my mind of technology so it's something that is has accompanied us through our existence and uh, will keep doing so more and more i heard someone say in naval ravikant maybe you know
0: it's an angel investor in america and he said once something works it's no longer technology technology it's not only the thing that moves the human race forwards but it's also the thing that only ever has oil in
1: his regard was at one time a technology
0: and now it's just mainstream. So you agree?
1: Absolutely. It becomes a commodity. If technology is is foreign to what we do every day, it's still not really well embedded, integrated, lived on a daily basis. Today we use phones, we use laptops, we use cars. I drive an electric car. It's actually a computer on wheels. Uh, I don't even notice that difference anymore. So. The, the idea of technology is that it has to be so embedded in everyday life and in what you do every day that you don't even notice anymore that it exists and it brings value to you and takes you to higher levels.
0: So it's always on the innovation frontier, let's say, but on the other hand, you are a manager and manager always has the connotations of uh, being maybe bureaucratic, maybe disciplinary, maybe controlling one's uh, results, but innovation... More has the connotations of creativity, exploration, entrepreneurship, maybe.
1: Are those concepts opposing management and innovation? So I'm going to try to give you a long answer to, uh, to the question. I'd rather not define myself a manager. I manage people in, in a hierarchy. Uh, hierarchies are the things I like the least uh, in my job. I try to do, and here you have to ask my people how successful I am, uh, but at least uh, my aim is to be a leader rather than a manager. So my goal is more to um, give a purpose uh, to what my people do. And, uh, you know, a lot of my people love to build great tech and they love to build great products and they want to excite customers and achieve business success. Uh, So that's the motivation I give to my people and try to give them the tools uh, to do that. So and again if you think about it you know I'm I'm an engineer so I'm typically very solution oriented and I like to get into the how and that's something I needed to unlearn uh, while going up in the hierarchy because in the end the how has to be found by the teams that are working on the problem to me my 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 role is besides getting people to grow getting people to be inspired to be motivated and to have, to have a purpose but also give to my people the tools that they can use to solve problems now if these are innovative problems or existing problems it doesn't matter but the, the, the biggest idea is that they they need to feel empowered in what they do and I don't need to micromanage them and I don't need to more an en- enabler and an intrapreneur let's say yeah, well, I don't need to shoot nuclear bombs on everything they do every day and disrupt their work. If they know the problem uh, that we're trying to solve, if they know the goals of the company that we're trying to achieve, they will make sure that we get there. And they have, they're have they closer to, the, to, to how we get solutions uh, done, and they're the experts. You know, we pay our people very well because they know what they do. Um, uh, I'm not paid to overrule them. Otherwise, you know. We're not, gonna not talk
0: extensively uh, how you do that and, and with what tools you give them. But when have you actually been infected with a passion for technology? Because when you talk about you know, the sticks and stones and how it emerged and with the whole industrial age and then the software and, and in the future, maybe more AI, I, I see you, you become happy. You like the subject. Since when?
1: Well, I guess you know it's in my DNA. I was, uh, I was born like that. Uh, you know, since I was very, very small, I loved to take things, break them apart, and try to rebuild them. Now you can guess that. when I was small, when I broke things, I never really succeeded in <laughs> rebuild them, rebuilding them. And that was the frustration of my mother uh, pretty often. But like televisions and computers and, and radios, and, and speakers. televisions, speakers, anything you could think of that was working, I would have the curiosity to just undo, uh, understand how it worked. So I was really more focused on the how and just go deeper in in figuring out, can it, can it work different? Can I, you know, wire things differently and what happens? Now, often things did go wrong, I got electrocuted a few times in my life, so I'm not going to go through all of the stupid things I did, but that's, that's part of me, so I was born like this. I actually loved also building uh, radio-controlled airplanes uh, when I was young. I, actually, I loved aeronautics, that's who I was when I was young, but then I figured out when I went to university that maybe aeronautics were not exactly for me, and I went more into mm. the electronics and telecommunications direction. So, uh, so that's how I was born, there's no, uh, no other reason for that and the so there, curiosity to understand things uh, but then when I grew is also to understand the purpose for things, uh, uh, grew even further uh, in me. So there hasn't been a moment, it was just
0: uh, your blueprint? <laughs> it's just me, okay, <laughs> that's very clear. Before we're gonna talk about RTL, I first I'm interested in the fact you have an extremely multicultural background, your genes are half Lebanese, half Italian, if I'm correct. Correct. You, you lived two and a half years in Lebanon, three years in South Africa, all for work, two years in Italy, and now in Holland. How did it come about? And was it mostly on purpose? Did you search for it for a specific reason? Or did it just emerge like by accident?
1: Yeah, so I, you know, I go by the principle that life is a mix of planning and luck. And, and I think that mix uh, happened to me. I always love travel, you know, discovering places, understanding cultures, engaging with people from different backgrounds has always also be, been part of me. By the way, I'm an Africa lover. When I, I, I lived only three years in Africa, but Africa stayed in my heart. There's a lot of authenticity uh, in the continent and that's something I really appreciate. So yeah, you know, loving travel, being in technology and, you know, made me look for opportunities to move around.
0: And, and how does it serve you?
1: Well, technology is universal by design. So I guess knowledge, it's not like law. So if you know Dutch law, you might be missing things on Spanish law or Argentinian law or whatsoever. Technology is universal. If you know technology and you, you know you can build software, um, you can be present in anywhere in the world. And that knowledge is the same across the board. So it is pretty pretty much intrinsic in what I do to connect with people all across the world. And that's great. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity. When, when I arrived in RTL, we had a small team of data scientists and data engineers. That was international, but that was mostly it. And in the dialogue at the time was Sven, which just uh, Sven Sauve, which became the CEO on 1st of July, 2017. So one month after I joined, I told him, listen, you know, this is an opportunity. We need to be able to get talent on the technology side from outside the Netherlands. And do we commit uh, to that as a company? Because it is a change. And we've agreed to that. And uh, right now, I believe we have more than 30 nationalities uh, within the technology organization. But but those specific talents couldn't be easily found in Holland. Well, the Dutch market is pretty stressed on talent. So there's a lot of multinationals that exist here and the country is small. However much um, uh, talent we have, it is not sufficient to serve the needs. That's on one side. Uh, On the other side, I strongly believe that having a diverse team uh, from different backgrounds gives us different perspectives on problems and different ways of solving these problems. And it gives us more richness on on how we work together and more openness uh, as a a team and as an organization. So there's a value beyond just, you know, fishing in the Dutch pond of talent in having a multicultural team that goes way, way beyond just the knowledge. So the the multi culturality, I don't know
0: if that's a word, but within you, with all the experiences you got from all the different parts of the world, you've lived the longest time actually here in the Netherlands. There probably is a reason for that, why that happened. But Holland, a lot of people say that we're like the gateway for Europe with regards to innovation. And maybe that's very big chauvinism of us. But I think with regards to creativity, for example, there is certain evidence for that, that we are innovating. Um, what were the things that you found out about the Dutch culture that are specifically Dutch, and could that maybe be the reason for the fact that we are a precursor to innovation in in Europe maybe
1: yeah, well, it is true um, you know also with my previous work, we found out that the Netherlands is a precursor, especially in Europe around innovation there 's multiple reasons for that i 'm not sure if i 'm going to go through all the reasons, but anyway, in my mind. You notice that digital penetration in the Netherlands is very high. So we have internet penetration more than 90% uh, uh, in the Dutch households. I guess even above 95% uh, uh, right now. So it's extremely high. The mindset of the Dutch population is digital-minded. They're not afraid, uh, Dutch people, to try new technology and figure stuff out, while potentially other countries might be more resistant and a bit more careful in going through that path. And the Dutch population is also pretty optimist, uh, optimistic in general. So when certain economical difficulties happen or whatever, it's not the first country that goes down the drain and starting to panic. Actually, they still they stay positive and And so I think there's a lot, you know, a lot of cultural elements in the Dutch society that helps it being digitally minded. And it's small, so it's also pretty much contained. So because of that, often new services or new products or new companies get launched in the Netherlands to try them out. And it's actually a very good place to get quick feedback and quick learnings uh, uh, around products and services and, and then scale them up uh, across the world uh, further on. Okay, and, you- and I love the Netherlands, by the way, so I need to say that um, I'm almost adopted Dutch still don't have the Dutch nationality you know my girlfriend keeps telling me well maybe you want to think of that actually I'm just European so there's not much of a difference but I still like to you know to keep that Italian uh, part of me and yeah I feel great here but you were
0: talking about testing in the market and scaling it up and 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 then we immediately come to what you did at RTL Uh, since your appointment the lean agile transformation of the digital and tech activities let's say has been implemented And that's very different from the original, let's say, um, industrial way, manufacturing way of innovating or of making products. Could you explain with regards to, for example, structure or processes or leadership or mindset or culture, what the biggest differences are between the Lean Agile way
1: or the Waterfall way? It's important to stress that there's no good and bad method. Waterfall and Agile have a place for being. And I'll try to give you my take on this. Waterfall works well in a world which I would call complicated. And a complicated world is where you have, uh, you can imagine yourself in a kitchen, uh, and you have a lot of ingredients, and you want to make a very interesting dish, but it's a complicated dish, but you have the recipe. Now, it could take days to get that dish done, and you don't need to use special ovens for it and special ingredients for it, but you have the recipe. So in the end of the day, you start defining what you need to do from the beginning. And you know what you need to do from the start. And these steps are very well defined, both in quantity and in time and in work. And that's the waterfall way of working. So if you know what to do, and if you know all your ingredients, waterfall works great. If the world is more stable. Yeah, and if the knowns are knowns, if you know everything you need to do. So there there is certain... A high amount of knowledge in what you're dealing with and experience, so these recipes you could get them from your grandmother and she's done them or you know in a certain way, and it's proven it works that way um, now if you're navigating in a world with high level of uncertainty, which potentially even disrupted media today is the most disrupted industry in the world, and the level of uncertainty is high i e I don't know what my competitor is doing tomorrow. I don't know what a consumer might find useful or not useful tomorrow. I don't know what technology will bring in a few weeks' time. So these are all variables that are not well described and not well defined. That is where Waterfall would not work well. And that's where Agile comes extremely handy. The, the the key point of Agile is not pretending that we know the outcome in one or two or three years because that's where it goes completely wrong. But actually that we know how to build increments uh, that are delivered within two weeks prints. And these increments bring small elements of value to the market, small elements of value to the customer. And through that, we keep evolving fast. We also fail we fail a lot, but we fail fast and we fail small instead of failing big if we would have gone through a one or two a year sort of sprint. So that's the difference between the two models. That's what we try to adopt. And since we're in the media industry, as said, we're highly disrupted. We're in a highly uncertain world. Agile comes handy in, in specific domains. And that's what we're trying to implement uh, with an RTL. So we started within the digital domain, expanding, the uh, the agile mindset scaling it up uh, with our digital products and we talk about uh, video Land for sure but also RTLXL, rtlnl rtl news Bargatter, so all our digital products then we moved into scaling it also in the advertising domain so with the full ad alliance technology stack which is Also, typically, it's been pretty static in what we could deliver from advertising products to the market and how we engage with our advertisers. And now we're engaging with the content domain, and we're really going deep in how we deal with the content from a supply chain point of view. So how do we manage content from the creation process or the acquisition process? So from that ingest moment down to the distribution point. So... We don't use agile everywhere in the organization. So with finance, we're not yet uh, uh, that far. or With HR processes, but with the core business processes, we're interweaving technology uh, with the core business processes to be more nimble uh, and more resilient uh, to what happens in the market. So if the world is in increasingly changing
0: and very unpredictable, then you have to use like a tiptoe technique and immediately know that what you're gonna build and what you're gonna invest in actually will bring value to the customer instead of making something (laughs) and when it's done, when the product is done, it's in the market, you actually come to the conclusion that nobody wanted it.
1: Exactly. So you you move away from assumptions. You have this bright idea and you're going to take, you know, one or one and a half years to create that wonderful product and then you get faced with the fact that it's either too early or too late or no one wants it. You work with hypotheses. Uh, That's how we work uh, within the Agile domain. So you start with the hypotheses. You say, you know, I think this can work. You try it on a sample of customers. You start getting initial feedback. You iterate on your hypotheses. So you fine-tune and you adjust, or you kill if it doesn't work. But once you fine-tune and you adjust, then you get to that optimum of that feature, and then you move to the next one. So when I'm looking at VideoLand...
0: I could have a different version of Videoland than my brother looking at the same moment in a different city.
1: That can be, absolutely. And, and, you and could what, be part of a, t- a test group.
0: And what kind of small uh, adjustments you make to test in the market? What could be an example?
1: It can be anything from a page where you could do your payments, how you we? Really propose the payments to be done and how we promote, for example, the basis tier versus other tiers and the language around that. You could say, uh, hey, customer, you know, you might want to try the, the basis tier or we believe the basis tier is the best for you. So you could have sort of two versions of that language and then you could test what works best for the customer, what converts uh, more uh, more customers. It could be placement of buttons. It could be the way the subtitling is being provided. So all of that we do Tens of experiments per sprint, and and we get a lot of data back, and that's how we keep improving our product going forward. That's inspiring, honestly,
0: it's not a fake compliment, because one of the hardest things when I look at Videoland from the outside, as a customer, as a happy customer, but when we look at Amazon Prime, or Netflix, or all the other platforms, every penny invested in the platform can be spread out over so many customers. And when you look at the MPO, the app, it doesn't really seamlessly work. I love the content, but I don't love the context, the platform. That's not the problem with Videoland. But how do you tackle the challenge that every penny invested in the platform for Videoland can only be spread out over not so many customers compared to the other platforms?
1: As, as part of our way of working, and again, we come back to agile principles, but it's not per se agile principles, it is prioritizing the work. So we have lots of ideas and lots of things we want to fix, a lot of uh, feedback we get from our customers. But we're what we're also perfecting is what is the most important thing we want to solve? What are the top two, three things? In every sprint, every two weeks, the team prioritizes the work and say, hey, these are two, three things that are important to our customers and bring value to our customers. And that's how we go We go on and on and on. And that's based on real customer feedback, regular short-cycled customer feedback. And we're very focused on Dutch consumers. So we learned to know them in the recent years. And we do what matters to the Dutch consumer in a very focused way. And it's not always about technology. So technology is definitely present in everywhere we do. But if you think about our marketing campaigns, uh, we're really gotten pretty good at what we do. If you look at the titles we choose, um, you know, the Amsterdam Housewives or Judas uh, 1 and 2 uh, right now, Mokra Mafia, of course, which is our uh, very well-known title, but also the uh, MMA Fights of Glory, where we uh, do the uh, live streaming of them. So, you know, we really try to understand what the customer needs and also with our customer care. Uh, so the way we interact with our customer, if I look at uh, simple metrics... In 2017, uh, when I joined, we had we were north of what was it 170,000 subs or something like that. We had a 20% contact ratio with customer care. So imagine 20% of our customers were getting in touch with our customer care because of issues of the platform, not finding content, payment problem, whatever. One it in was. every five. That's a lot. One yeah. in every five, and you you can think of today we're north of 1.1 million subscribers. And our contact ratio is 3%. So you could also understand, coming back to the focus on the Dutch consumer, the subscribers we have on the platform, we really try to address what they need in the right way. And we've improved a lot on the platform. We've improved a lot of communication and engagement methods. We've improved a lot on the titles we choose. So we've done a lot of work in getting really close to our Dutch subscribers. I always thought that the competitive advantage for VOD platforms
0: and Videoland and gets praised for being like the local hero, the, the, the only survivor in Holland with regards to VOD platforms in a commercial way against the big tech companies. Then I always thought that's only about the content. But now when I hear you speaking, it's also a lot about the context, the platform, the user interface. What are the percentage, do you think?
1: It's hard to say. Content is king, uh, so there's no discussion about that. So, without content, we would not go anywhere. Now, maybe platform is queen. Uh, <laughs> uh, that- <laughs> so, uh, we could think in, in those terms. Um, as said, you know more and more it is not purely about streaming content to users because of course content is very widespread libraries are pretty big uh, these days searchability becomes uh, important recommendations uh, become important knowing who the user is and what the user liking the specific user liking so the platform has to make sure that that content is made available to the user in the simplest and the fastest and the most immediate uh, uh, way possible. So that's why I refer to marketing, to customer care, whereby our services, driven through technology, become much more specific to the user, making that user experience uh, the better possible for, uh, for the Dutch consumers. If I look at numbers, I think the numbers now are giving us a, a reason that we're doing a few things right. Congrats with that,
0: Thank by you. the way. But um, in the agile way, if I understand you correctly, you constantly check with the customer if they like what you're doing, if the the small incremental changes are actually worthwhile for them, are actually giving worth, or how do you say that? Value. Value to them, (laughs) thank you. But one of the hardest things for me when I look at it from the outside is the customer doesn't always know what it will want. A quote from Steve Jobs, just because I like the quote so much. He said, our job is to figure out what customers are going to want before they actually do. If Henry Ford asked customers what they want, they would have said a faster horse. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. That's why I never rely on market research. Of course, and that will be a question, there will be a difference between market research on the one hand and the tiptoe technique you use in the agile way. But isn't that a danger? Isn't there a danger to it, to always listen
1: to the customers? It is absolutely true that, you know, if you ask what customers want, they just want more of the same, better, <laughs> right? There's, there's, uh, it's, it's very difficult to ask the customer, dream and innovate with me. So the agile approach helps us do what we call horizon one innovation. And horizon one innovation is really this iterative way to adjust the product and to evolve the product in the way it stays close to what it is. Incremental change. Incremental change. There's other domains of innovation, Horizon 2 and Horizon 3, whereby you either stay close uh, to your product or you go in completely different directions. So Horizon 2 innovation, you might be a rubber producer, I know for rubber seals, and then you become a tire producer, whatever. You stay in the rubber domain, but you, uh, you just make a different product out of it. And Horizon 3 Innovation is, uh, uh, th- th- there, there is a company in the U.S. which is used as an example, it's it used to, to produce wooden buckets, and then it defines their mission as a containing company because they need to contain stuff. And they started containing many things, and they even evolved in the aeronautics industry just because they contain passengers. That's Horizon Three innovation. That's where customers are pretty poor at giving you feedback uh, upon. Now, the way you do that is first of all you describe a purpose for yourself. Uh, so, what are you? I, I, I'm, you know, I want to do best rubber seals, or am I in the containing business? And that gives you the perspective of how far and, and where where you want to explore, because the the in- innovation mindset is more an. Ex- explorative mindset versus exploitation mindset Um, and and once you move in the explorative mindset um, yet again uh, a mistake can be in going and creating something big and something huge that takes five years to make and then it fails so you could also use similar methods to the ones that we use uh, within uh, our uh, routine two-week sprint to create prototypes uh, and creating small uh, uh, ideas, uh, uh, small products, and testing them with customers and getting that feedback pretty quickly. So you don't, you don't need to spend a lot of money. You don't need to spend a lot of time. You have to keep it small, but still experiment while you put a product in the hands of your customer and asking Okay, what do you feel when you use this? What, does it, what, does, what, what problem does it solve to you? Is it good enough? And then you go in that engagement. And then you're really good at killing that product a lot. So if you're in the exploitation mode um, whereby you need to keep your product alive and then do this uh, fast iteration, your failure rate is relatively smaller still maybe double-digit, but still relatively smaller than a domain where you might need to innovate and, and, and create these prototypes where your failure rate might be above 80 or 90%. So that's also a different mindset whereby the more you innovate, the more you fail. And that culture you need to have within the organization to accept also failure as a principle.
0: Could be a change for leadership also.
1: Well, if leadership is used to succeeding all the time, and to achieving results in every action uh, the company takes, yes, then uh, innovation is a change uh, at a a leadership uh, leadership level. The failures that you, if you see failures as a dramatic event, just because you put a lot of money in it, a lot of effort, a lot of people, and it was maybe your one-trick pony uh, for your future, yeah, then it's pretty dramatic when you fail. Uh, but if failures are used, first of all, they're small, uh, they're fast, and they're used to learn. That's a value to the organization. We, within RTL, celebrate failures. Uh, we have moments once a month with my team where we <laughs> declare uh, our failures, and, uh, and we celebrate them. And we say what we learned out of them. Which campaign Champagne. Well, if it's a big failure, then champagne. That could, there could be champagne. There could be champagne, but typically it's smaller things like beer or whatsoever. But we do do it at the end of days, uh, on, once a month uh, within technology, but also within the B2C organization. We really talk about our failures and we exchange the information about it. And it is used as a learning process. It's not, it's not a drama. I'm making a joke out of it, but of course,
0: it's a big mindset shift uh, if I hear this. But learning that's then the milestone that or at at least the goal of the failure to learn from it but learning is very intangible if if you are my my leader let's say and i said uh, i failed a lot this week and learned a lot so uh, you are very happy with me
1: how how can you get me to be accountable make me accountable sorry well everyone is accountable for company results so the most important thing is communicating the goals of the organization to the teams Failure is part of the process. Permanent failure is not a great thing. If the only thing you do is fail, I'm not sure you we're doing the right things. But is if as part of your process of experimenting and trying things, there are failures, then you've learned part of the process and you will use that then to achieve the goals. So you're accountable for the goals. The amount of failures and the amount of successes are just a means for the end. And it's up to you to figure out how many failures you need uh, and how many successes you need to get there and you
0: also talked previously in this interview about uh, the link between art and science at least that's how you call it at rtl you said the agile way of working with testing in the market will be or can be or should be also more used in the content creation and of course, video launch. Now you get a lot of data from the customers: what they like, what they don't like. Also, with regards to the content, which data of all the data that's available is valuable for the creatives, and how can they? How would that look like? An agile
1: content creation process. Hard question. So, Sorry. <laughs> no, it's 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 a good question. So. There's a lot of data to be received from the behavior of our users. So for example, if we have multiple users uh, that go and search Mocro Mafia Season 5 and we don't have it yet, uh, then we know that there's a high interest for it. So that type of data gets given back uh, to our content organization uh, to understand that there's a need uh, for a certain type of content. Uh, or if they search for any other content, so search for us is a very interesting um, uh, data point, point to see where which directions our customers are looking for unmet uh, needs. Uh, sorry, unmet needs. Unmet needs, exactly. So if they're if they're searching for something that needs, it means they uh, they need it. Uh, we also look at data from a viewership point of view. So um, if uh, if consumers are watching certain content, be it you know live broadcast or on on video or whatever, and then they hook off or maybe more hook-on. That's very important data points to understand. Is it an emotion that triggered that, uh, that change of behavior? Is it certain language, certain topics? So these things are very important data points to use as feedback to the creative process. Um, but what I always say is, if you want to innovate, the worst thing you can do is use data. Data keeps you attached to what you've done. And that's good feedback for adjustments and and things you wanna you wanna tune in your product and and in your content. If you wanna create something new, the horizon three or two exactly. And you're tied to the data you have, you would be limited. And that's where the content creative process needs to be away from data. So so there's two domains. One is the free creative process, which. Is not per se attached to data but once that free creative process is done the adjustment around the creative process can use a lot of the data of the Mm. consumers while they're consuming the content and uh, and and improve that content accordingly so data is always
0: looking back correct and real new formats or 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 fiction
1: series is is new so it's looking it's innovating it's new absolutely and and again look create the creative process is innate in everyone. I also see my engineers as creative people. The way they try technology out or they build products out, as I said, includes a lot of failures. And if they would you know, use a lot of data, they would have maybe less failures, but they would be less innovative. So the creative process is very much seen as, as something innate in every one of us, but it has to be free. But once that freedom is done, validating that idea can be done through data in holland we say uh, the diamond slijpen. (laughs) exactly shaping the diamond yeah Yeah. thank you yeah i
0: have still uh, 100 more questions but uh, unfortunately this time the time is ending so i want to thank you for your time it was a interesting conversation so maybe in in one and a half year we can go for the 2.0 interview but the last question i always ask to everyone in this podcast is What's the best advice you could give about finding your way in the creative world?
1: Yeah. Um well, one thing we mentioned right regarding my background, I'm not I'm not I don't come from the media industry. So I come from a totally different industry and coming in the media industry was also a conscious choice to learn a new industry and uh, be in a disruptive world. Um so the first the first thing is at least what I learned is not to come with a higher knowledge and assume that my knowledge is better than that embracing the creative industry is extremely important and and respect it it is uh, it it has a huge value second at least again as a technologist don't believe that technology will replace creatives uh, that's not the case it's about finding the way to work together that is uh, that is the magic that is the magic thing technology and and content creation typically what I also notice are furthest apart by nature. Uh, you, At least that's how people behave. And the magic is once you start connecting uh, with uh, with creatives, a lot of sparks come out. It's absolutely amazing in dialogues between uh, myself and Peter van der Forst or Ralph or anyone that how many great ideas come out when we just start rubbing elbows. But we have a tendency, for some reason, not to start working close together. But once we do, it's wonderful, and we're doing a lot of that these days with an RTL. It's, uh, we're, I'm really looking forward to the future. It's an amazing place to be. So maybe in the future, there will be
0: interactive 3D content projects where, where digital and physical worlds will merge. And
1: Well, one thing I can tell you is that we're, we're experimenting, we're starting to experiment in Web3. So there's a few things that will come out. You will see us a bit more active in this domain. And we aim to learn. Uh, so definitely content and technology are getting closer together. And uh, we're soon going to see some of that.
0: But that will be a radical, disruptive, Horizon 3 kind of innovation, probably.
1: It will be small. As said, it will be, uh, it will be a Horizon 2. It will be still focused on content. So it's close to the business we do. It's in a different domain. Uh, so if we start exploring Web3... And there's a lot we don't know, so it's going to be explorative. It's going to be learning. It's going to be a lot of failures, uh, but it's going to stay small at start.
0: Celebrate the failures.
1: Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you, Giovanni. Great it was to be, a be here. Pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. Joost.
0: And that's it for the broadcast magazine Young Joost weten, Podcast episode 152 with Giovanni, Pichirin. The next two weeks we will have a winter stuff, but no worries. After that, we will be back with fresh episodes. If you may have somebody in mind that you would love to hear as a guest in this podcast, let me know. We will try to fix it. And for now, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Deze podcast werd made mogelijk gemaakt door Broadcast Magazine. Naast een vakblad in print.